0: Last week we started the message that Paul gave to the elders of the church there in Ephesus and the message focused on three main things. First, Paul reviewed his past ministry there in Ephesus. Uh, second, he's going to focus on his uh, present circumstances. And then third, he's going to warn about the future dangers that the church would face. And last week, we started by looking at Paul's past ministry there in Ephesus, and he basically shared with us three main things, uh, his motive, his manner, and his message of ministry. Uh, and this morning, we're going to look at his present circumstances and ministry. And Paul discusses in his present circumstances and ministry he's going to deal with three main things. First he's going to share with us a big problem that he had Second, he's going to share with us a way in which he responded to that big problem. And then most importantly, third, he's going to share with us how he did that. Why was he able to respond in this godly way to the problem that he had? And we're going to see three specific things that Paul does to enable him to do that. So let's see what we can learn here from the second part of Paul's message, which focuses on his present circumstances and ministry. Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 22, says this. And see, now I go bound in spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulation await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God." Paul starts off here in verse 22, and he says, and see now. Here we have this transition from the past to the present. He was focusing on his past ministry. Now he's going to be focusing on his present circumstances. And the first thing that Paul wants us to know about his present circumstances is a problem that he faces, a problem that is coming to him. And notice what he tells us in verses 22 and 23. And see now I go bound in spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulation await me. Now, I want you to notice something here. Paul is being directed by God to go to Jerusalem, to do ministry in Jerusalem. He says, I am bound in the spirit to go to Jerusalem. God is leading him. God is guiding him. God is directing him there. But you know what? Paul also recognizes something about what's going to happen. If you noted last week, remember that Paul didn't stop in Ephesus. Why? Because he wanted to get to Jerusalem. He has this heart for Jerusalem, but he also has a recognition of what is awaiting him when he gets there. We're told, Paul says, the Holy Spirit testifies in every city saying that chains and tribulation await me. Now, something important for us to remember here is the Holy Spirit never lies. The Holy Spirit's never wrong. And so if the Holy Spirit testifies that chains and tribulation await you, guess what? Chains and tribulation await you. He recognized this truth. He knew that if the Holy Spirit is saying this is going to happen, then I need to expect it. I need to think that, hey, this is going to be something when I get to Jerusalem that I'm going to face. Now, Paul was not someone who was new to chains and tribulation. As we've seen through the book of Acts, he's been beaten many times times. He's gone through horrible imprisonment and, and suffering and tribulations. He, he knows what it's like to deal with those types of things. And the person or people group that have caused him the most problems are Jews. Jews who don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Jews who hate the message that Paul is proclaiming. Remember, Paul used to be one of them. He was so zealous that he tried to destroy Christianity, but instead of destroying Christianity, he joined it. He became a Christian, and now he's a marked man. The poster boy of Judaism, the one they sent to destroy Christianity, came back as a Christian, and they hate him, and they want him dead. And we've seen many times these Jews have tried to kill him. And so he recognizes how they feel about him. He recognizes the lengths that they will go to kill him, and guess where he's going? He's going to the hub of Judaism. There's more Jews in Jerusalem That is where the hub of it is. The people group that hate him most are there in Jerusalem. And so if he's had enough problems as he's done his missionary journeys in all these Gentile cities, imagine the kind of issues that he's going to face as he goes to Jerusalem to face this hostile group of people that has already shown that they want to kill him. And so when he hears chains and tribulation await you in Jerusalem, I'm sure he recognized the severity of what was coming. I'm sure that as we even look later on in in these verses, he realized it's very likely that I might die. It's very likely that as I get there and share with these people, this will be the end for me, that they will finally succeed in what they've tried to do so many times. And so Paul's big problem is that chains and tribulation await him in Jerusalem. Now, I want you to try to put yourself in Paul's situation. If you were in a ministry like Paul was and you traveled from city to city declaring the gospel, preaching the word of God to people, and you knew that the next city that you were headed to, you were confident the Spirit of God spoke to you, that chains and tribulation awaited you there, how would you respond to that knowledge? How would you respond to knowing that, The next place I go to, it's going to be bad news for me. Think about that for a moment. How do you think you would respond to that? I'm sure that a lot of us would probably say, if chains and tribulation await me in the next place I'm going, let's go somewhere else. If chains and tribulation await me in Jerusalem, forget that. I'm not going there. I don't want to receive that. I don't want to have to endure those things. Paul has this big problem. He's being led by God to go to Jerusalem. He has a heart and a passion to reach the people in Jerusalem, but he also knows change and tribulation await him when he gets here. Well, let's see how Paul responds to this problem in verse 24. We're told this. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul starts off by saying none of these things move me. The things that Paul is referring to are the chains and the tribulation. He's saying the reality that chains and tribulation await me when I get to Jerusalem is not going to move me from going. The Greek word translated move means to lead away, to be moved from the course you are on, to be caused to change direction or position. So Paul's big problem was that chains and tribulation await him in Jerusalem, and he responds in a godly way by not being moved by the difficulties, by the chains, by the tribulation that are coming. It didn't lead him away from God. It didn't cause him to change direction or go somewhere besides Jerusalem. It didn't move him from the course that God had given him to go on. Paul didn't let this problem, this difficulty, this trial move him. You know, all of us encounter big problems in our life. We encounter situations and difficulties that are difficult and hard, especially as we seek to live for God and and follow His plan for our life. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, will we allow those hardships, those difficulties to move us? Will we allow it to move us from following God? Will we allow it to move us from spending time with God? Will we allow it to move us from ministering for God. You know, Satan is in desperate desire to move you and to move me. He wants to move us from our relationship with God as far as he can. He wants to move us from serving God and living for God and making an impact in this world for Christ. He's desperate for us to be moved. And so he loves to throw things in our way and to bring things against us because he wants us to be moved from what God has for us. Paul is faced with this big problem of chains and tribulation awaiting him in Jerusalem, but he doesn't allow it to move him. And you might be thinking, how? You know, I'm faced with these things all the time and I get moved. How is it that Paul, when faced with such thoughts of great difficulty, possibly death, would not allow that to move him? And this is what I really want us to focus on this morning because Paul shares with us three reasons why. Why is it that he was at a place where he could say, I'm not going to be moved by chains and tribulation? tribulation. He's going to share with us three things, and with each one of these things, he's going to give us an illustration to help kind of uh, us to grasp it a little better. But I want you to note these three reasons why Paul was not allowing himself to be moved, because they're so important for us to follow, so important for us to recognize, because when we're faced with the things that we face in life all the time, are we going to allow ourselves to be moved or not? Well, these three things will definitely help us not to be moved. The first reason that Paul gives us for why he wasn't moved is in verse 24. It says, nor do I count my life dear to myself. The first reason Paul wasn't moved is because his life wasn't the most valuable or the most dearest or, or the most important thing to his life to him. When Paul uses the phrase, nor do I count my life, it's a picture of someone taking a counting of their life. Someone examining their assets and liabilities and deciding what is valuable and what is important. You know, this is something that all of us do. We all take a regular accounting of our life and we determine, you know, what is important to us, what is valuable to us. And usually when we recognize that something is valuable, important, those are the things that we then invest in. Excuse me. The people you value the most, you invest your time in. The things you value the most, you invest your money in. The activities you value the most, you invest your talents in. The things that we don't value, we don't invest in. And that's kind of the the way in which we think, the way in which we process things. We we have that calculation in our minds. Now, for a lot of people, the thing that they value most, the thing that is most important to them, is their own life. Their own comfort, their own well-being, their own time their own pleasure, their own happiness. And it takes something that you value greater than your own life to be willing to sacrifice those things, to be willing to sacrifice your well-being and your time and your comfort and your pleasure. You have to value something greater than yourself in order for you to be able to willingly do that. And this is something that we see happen all the time with new parents. They have this new baby that they bring into their home that they now value more than themselves. They value really probably more than anything at their life. And and they bring that baby home, and they're willing to sacrifice their sleep. (laughs) They're willing to sacrifice comfort. They're willing to sacrifice all sorts of areas of their life that maybe before that they weren't willing to sacrifice. But now that sacrifice they see is worth it because they value that child more than they value themselves. If I were to tell you parents here that something horrible was going to happen to your child, but there was a way you could stop it. But in order for you to stop it, you would have to go through change and tribulation. You'd have to go through horrible difficulty. I'm sure that almost all of you, hopefully all of you, if we're good parents, we would say, you know what, I'm willing to go through change and tribulation for my child, to save my child, to help my child. Why? Because I value my child more than I value myself. As we take an accounting of our life, you would look at the value of your life versus the value of your child's life. And because you value your child more, you would say, change and tribulation are worth it. I'll do it. I'll go through it because if it helps my child, then it's worth it. You see, this is the kind of thing that Paul is doing when he says, I do not count my life dear to myself. Paul is looking at the value of his life versus the value of following and serving Jesus Christ. And he's he's doing an accounting of that. What do I hold most valuable to me? Now, I want you to know the only reason chains and tribulation are coming into Paul's life is because he's serving the Lord. If he continues to go to Jerusalem where he's been called to go, that's why chains and tribulation are coming to him. So if he decided, you know what? I'm not going to serve the Lord anymore. I'm not going to go where God wants me to go. I'm not going to do these things. Guess what? Change and tribulation aren't going to come. He knows that the connection with change and tribulation come because of his service for Jesus Christ. And so now he has to calculate. He has to make a choice. Will I let this move me from ministering for Jesus or will I continue to minister and go through change and tribulation? You see, the thing that impacted Paul's decision to not be moved was that he valued Jesus and ministry for Jesus more than he valued his own life, more than he valued his own well-being, more than he valued his own comfort, more than he valued his own pleasure, more than he valued anything about himself, he valued Jesus and following Jesus more. And because of that, the chains in the tribulation were not going to move him from continuing to minister for Jesus. Now, this brings us to a very important question about what we value most. All of us value our lives. All of us value our time. All of us value our well-being. All of us value every aspect of our lives. And there's nothing wrong with value in your life. The problem comes when you value it more than anything else. And this is the real issue that we face. Do you value your life more than you value Jesus, more than you value following him? And this is what Paul was doing an accounting of, looking at his own life and saying, you know what, my life is not dear to me in comparison to following and serving and doing what Jesus has called me to do. The question we need to ask ourselves is, do we value our own life more than we value ministering? For Jesus? If the answer is yes, if you can be honest with yourself and say, Yes, I value my comfort, I value my life, I value my pleasure, I value my happiness more than serving Jesus, let me tell you something you will be moved. Because in ministry, Those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, they will suffer persecution. You will have trials. You will have tribulation. You will have difficulty. And I guarantee you, if Jesus is not more important than your life, it's going to move you because you're going to say, you know what? It's not worth it. I value me more than I value him, and therefore I'm not going to do this because I don't want to go through that. I don't want to deal with those things. I don't want to have to experience those hardships and heartaches. So the first reason Paul was not moved by this big problem in his life was because he valued his relationship and ministry for Jesus more than his own life. You know, this is a wonderful example for us and something that we need to do as well. If we truly want to say, Lord, I don't want to be moved by the tribulations, by the suffering, by the difficulties that come, then we have to make a choice. We have to recognize, do I truly value him more? Because it has to be there. We have to value Jesus and ministry for Jesus more than our own lives if we want to be able to say, hey, I'm not going to be moved. Jesus needs to be what's most important to you and to me. The second reason that Paul gives us for why he isn't moved by chains and tribulations in verse 24 is so that he might finish his race with joy. Here Paul paints a picture of us for us of of someone running a race. Now, I'm sure that all of us here, or at least most of us here, at some point in time in our life were involved in a race, whether as young kids or maybe more seriously as we got older. You know, and I'm imagining that many of you probably even ran in a longer race, possibly even in a marathon, or at least have watched people do it. And now, in a marathon, you have different types of runners. You know, first there are those who aren't runners at all. You know, they just sign up to get the T-shirt so that everyone thinks they ran. You know, they just want to look like, hey, you know, I ran the so-and-so marathon. Uh, and so, when people look at it, they say, "Wow, look at that's so great! You know, look what you've done." You know, I had a friend years back, uh, and he was, you know, kind of significantly overweight, and he had all these marathon T-shirts that he ran. And he always tell people, "Oh, you know, I used to be real thin, and I used to run all the time, and you know, I just kind of let myself go, and I got big." Uh, and, and I remember just thinking about this, and I said, "You know, I think you got one problem with your story." Why is it when you were thin and running all the time that they would give you a triple X t-shirt to wear, you know, for this? I mean, don't you think you would have a t-shirt that would have fit your size back then? He's like, okay, well, don't tell anyone. But, you know, it was kind of obvious of that. But, you know, he just wanted to be seen as someone who ran, but the reality was he didn't. So first, you have those people who are not runners at all. Second, you have those who run, but they don't finish. They They start. They think, oh, this sounds great. They probably have some friends who say, hey, you know what? Let's go run 26 miles. Doesn't that sound great? Oh yeah, that'll be fun. We'll do it together. And then about one or two miles in, they think, what were we thinking? This is painful. This hurts. My legs are hurting. My lungs are hurting. You know, let's go home and sit on the couch. You know, they, they finally just say, forget this. It's too painful and hard. And so they don't finish. They just quit and give up. Well, then there's those who, who, who run to finish. They don't run to win. They just want to cross the finish line. They don't care how long it takes. They could do 26 miles in 26 hours. They just want to prove to themselves, I can finish this race. They're not in it to win it. They know that plenty of people are going to beat them. They just kind of want to finish. They're not giving it their best. They're just hoping that they finally cross the finish line. And then there are those who run to win. They train. They have the right gear. Their whole mindset is, we're running to win this race. We're not running for second or third. We want to win. We're going to give it our all to ultimately Be victorious. Now, when Paul says that I might finish my race, he isn't speaking of a literal race like a marathon, but he's using this race as an illustration. He's speaking of the race that God has given him in life. And notice he says, my race, because Paul understood something, that God gave him a specific race to run, a specific ministry, a specific calling, and I want you to recognize that all of us have a race by God. He has a specific ministry and calling for all of us to run. And so all of us are running the race that God has given us. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, what kind of runner are we? You know, just like there are different runners in a marathon, you know, there are different runners in the body of Christ. There are different runners uh, who are running for the race that God has given them. And just like with the marathon, the first group of people are people who don't run at all, but they sure want to be seen as runners. They want to be looked at as runners. They tell people how much they run. They tell people, you know, all these things that they want to be perceived as doing this great stuff for God. But in all reality, they're not doing anything. Yeah, well, we call them hypocrites, that they want to be seen as one thing, super spiritual, running the race that God has given them, when in all reality, they're not running it at all. You know, but then we have another group. They start the race, but maybe they didn't recognize what they were getting into. You know, Jesus says, count the cost for following me. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they didn't realize, well, I didn't know what I signed up for. This is a lot harder than I thought. This is a lot more difficult than I expected. There's a lot more issues coming in my life, and they just give up. Forget this. It's not worth it to me. I'm not going to continue on running the race that God's given me. You know. And then there are those who, they run, and they even run to finish, but they're not intentional about winning. It's great that they actually want to finish, but they're not giving it their all. They're not really focused on on doing their best. They just hope that they cross the finish line eventually. And then finally, there are those who run to win. They give it everything they have. They are in it to win it. That is their passion, their focus. They give their life completely to serving and running the race that God has given them. Now, I want you to think about the race of life that God has given you. And I want you to think about which one of these types of runners describes you best. Right now in your life, are you more like the first one who, you know, you want people to think you're running, but you know you're not. You, you want everyone to, to think you're doing real well in the spiritual life that God has wanting you to grow in, but, but you're not doing anything with it. Or perhaps you started running years ago and you've quit. It got too hard. You're done. You're, you come to church, you know, but, but you, you, don't, you don't want to run the race anymore. Or maybe you're just like, you know, I I want to finish, but I'm just going to do my own thing at my own pace. I'm not really too focused on this, but, but hopefully eventually, yeah, I'll finish the race. Or are you someone who said, you know what, I'm here to win. I'm here to give it my all. I want the Lord to have complete reign and rule over my life. You know, Paul was running the race that God gave him to win. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, another race illustration, chapters twenty, verses 24 and 25, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who completes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do not obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Here Paul makes very clear that just running the race isn't good enough. Everybody's in the race, but you, know, you need to run it to win. Only the winner receives the crown. That's how we should run. Run in such a way that you would win. Give it your all. Well, I can guarantee you one thing. You'll never win if you don't finish. You'll never win if you quit. You'll never win if something sidetracks you from the race that God has given you. And one of the best things that I have found to help you not to get sidetracked is as you run the race of life, Make sure you keep your eyes fixed on and focused on Jesus. One of my favorite passages in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, it says this, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. We could spend a lot of time just on this verse. But I just want to highlight, look at what Paul says here. We're told to run the race that God has given us with endurance. You know, that word endurance reminds us this isn't a sprint. This is a marathon. It's a long thing. The the, the life that we've been given, the race that we've been given, you know, it's something that takes a while. But you know what? The more important thing, as we run, we need to look to Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. You know, something important to remember about Jesus is he's the author. He's already started. He's the first one to run to, you know, and actually finish and do what he was supposed to do the way perfectly that God had given him to do. So he's run and he's finished. And I think it's important to remember that because he's the one who recognizes how hard it is. He knows the difficulties that come and he's the one who's done it perfectly. He's the one who made it perfectly and he is capable of helping you complete the race that God's given you. So as you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, he will help you finish the race God has given you. I remember watching the 1992 Olympics for some of you. You didn't watch it because you were too young or not even alive. But you know something that I remembered about those Olympics that really stuck with me was a man by the name of Derek Redman of Great Britain. He was favored to win the 400-meter relay race. And during the semifinal heat of that uh, race, he starts to run. And as you can see here, he's going to be starting and doing well. And as he turns the corner here, about halfway through the race, something goes horribly wrong. He tears his hamstring and, as you'll see, obviously cannot finish the race. He falls to one knee. And I don't know what was going through his mind of all this work and all this effort to, to win this. And now it's over. It's done. And he's in pain. And he's just there on his knee. But you know What? He's there, and he's thinking, and he gets up, and he starts to hobble down the track. He wants to finish the race, and as he's hobbling there, you know, the crowd's cheering for him, but something that's amazing, and it's a longer clip if you go look at it, but fighting through security is a man that people are like, what are you doing? Well, it turns out to be his dad, and his dad runs to his side, and his dad and him, you know, finish the race together. And this is one of the most moving things in that Olympics. And really, people look back into Olympic history of this man who wanted to finish, even though he tore his hamstring and his dad comes alongside of him and helps him finish the race. You know, and I like that in the sense of, you know, the perspective of our own race that we run because there are so many times we're not like Jesus, We don't do it perfectly. We fall down over and over again. And you know what? The Lord is there to pick us up. The Lord is there to help us. If we'll rely upon him, if we'll trust in him, if we'll allow him just to get us up and keep us going, he will help us to continue the race that he's called us to do. So don't give up. Just keep your eyes on Jesus and focus on him and allow him to help you keep going. Well, Paul tells us nothing's going to move him, nothing's going to keep him, nothing's going to stop him from running. Why? So that he may finish his race with joy. And think about that. Paul doesn't just want to finish. He wants to finish with joy. And I think one of the best ways that we can finish with joy is to keep the perspective of who is it that we will see at the end of the race? You know, when our life is done and the race is complete, we will get to see Jesus face to face. And I don't think there's going to be greater joy than to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. What a joyful thing if that is the words that we hear from Jesus, that he looks at our life and he says to us, you know what? You ran the race well, well done. You were faithful in what I gave you, well done. That's going to bring so much joy to us in keeping that perspective as we look to him and think of all the things that are coming at us. We say, you know what, it's worth it. It's worth going through this because one day I want to be able to stand before Jesus having finished what he gave me to do. So the second reason Paul was not moved by his big problem is because he cared more about finishing the race God gave him than the problems that come along the way. And this is another wonderful example for us. If you want to not be moved by the trials and tribulation that come into your life and you seek to serve Jesus, recognize that, you know what? You need to be as Paul was, caring more about finishing the race God has given you than the problems that come along the way. For many of us, we're more concerned about the problems. We're more concerned about the issues. And it keeps us from finishing and doing what God has called us to do. Run the race Run it to win, give it your all, and keep your eyes focused on Jesus. The third reason Paul gives us for why he isn't moved by chains and tribulation in verse 24 is because he wants to finish the ministry which he received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. When Paul says he wants to finish through the ministry that he was given by Jesus, he's given us this picture of a steward who wants to be faithful to what the master gave him. The master is Jesus, the steward is Paul, and he's been given something to be faithful with, and he tells us what that is, a specific ministry to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And Paul says, I want to be faithful. I want to be faithful with this. I want to finish, I want to complete what I've been given from God. You know, many passages of Scripture reveal this. Here's one in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. Moreover, it's required in stewards that one be found faithful. You know, the only way you're going to be a faithful steward to what the master has given you is if you actually do it. You're faithless when you don't do it. You're faithful when you do. You can't say, oh, I've been faithful, but I'm not obeying. Oh, I'm faithful, but I'm not doing. Oh, I'm faithful, but I'm not running what I've been given. No, the only way to be faithful is to actually do what God has called you to do. But are we willing to do it even when it gets difficult, even when chains and tribulation await us? See, for Paul, being faithful in ministry was more important than an easy life. Yeah, Paul could have had an easy life. He probably could have made a great living as a tent maker. He could abandon ministry and just live the life that he wanted to live and pursue the things that he wanted to pursue. But yet, you know what? An easy life isn't what Paul was seeking. It was a faithful life of serving Jesus. That was more important to him. The third reason why Paul was not moved by his big problems in life is because he was Willing to be faithful with what God called him to do, even if it meant tribulation. You know, this is another wonderful example for us. Are we willing to be faithful with what God has called us to do, even if it means, and I guarantee it does, difficulty, tribulation, hardship, you're not going to just have a, a bed of roses. It's not going to always just be easy. If you follow Jesus, call in your life, and ministry for your life, you will have issues and problems and difficulties. The enemy will come against you. The question is, is it valuable enough to you? Is it worth it to you? Are you willing to be faithful in it? We see with all three of these reasons why Paul was able to respond by not being moved is because he valued being faithful to the ministry God had called him to more than his own life. Paul loved God and serving God more than he loved himself. You know, in life, there are all sorts of things that could move us from what the Lord has us. Move us from serving the Lord. Move us from spending time with the Lord. Move us from ministering for the Lord. And there's a question I want you to ask yourself. Is there something that would move you from serving the Lord? If you lost someone close to you, someone that you love, would that move you from your relationship with Jesus? Would that move you from serving him? If you lost your job and became poor, would that move you? If you lost your health and became bedridden, would that move you? If you lost something that you greatly value, would that move you? You know, if you can think of something right now that you say, you know what, if I lost that, that would definitely move you from your relationship with the Lord, then ultimately you value that too much. We talked earlier about value in our own lives, but maybe for you, it's someone else's. Because oftentimes, as I mentioned earlier, your kids or others could be those that you value even more. And you say, well, if I lost them, then that would be it. Well, then our value on them is greater than our value of Jesus. Our value on that thing is greater than our value for following him, and we value it too much. Ultimately, Paul wasn't moved. Why? Because his value in life, as he calculated things out, Jesus was number one. Jesus was most important. Following him was most important. And that is what enabled him to say, you know what? This stuff isn't going to move me. It's not going to stop me because that's not what's most important to me. And I don't think he was someone who was like, I don't care about my life. No. But he recognized, I don't care about my life more than I care about Jesus and following him. I believe that God wants each one of us to be able to honestly say no matter what tribulation comes our way, none of those things will move us from continuing to love him and continuing to serve him. And the only way we'll be able to honestly say that is if we truly love and value our relationship and ministry to God more than anything else. And one of the most effective ways to grow in that is just regular time with the Lord. You grow in love for people as you develop relationships and spend time with them and get to know them. And the same thing with God. You develop your love for God as you spend time with him and you get to know him. And we can't neglect that and think, oh, I'm going to be someone who really loves God, but I never spend time with him. We have to spend time with him if we want to grow in that love for him. Well, Paul finishes his message about his present circumstances in verses 25 through 27. He says this, And indeed now I know that you all Among whom I've gone preaching the kingdom of God will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Notice what Paul says here. The fact that he said, you will see my face no more, helps us to recognize something. He believed when he got to Jerusalem, the chains and tribulation weren't just going to be hardships and difficulty. They were going to take his life. He did not expect to ever come back to Ephesus and see these believers again. You're not going to see me anymore. I realize that where I'm headed and where I'm going, it's it for me. But it's not going to move me. I don't care. Even if I die, I'm willing to give my life for Jesus. I'm willing to die for him. I'm willing to die in service of him. This isn't going to move me. And, you know, I think it's fascinating to think of how much this portion of Paul's life mirrors the life of Jesus. Like Jesus, Paul traveled to Jerusalem with a group of his disciples. Like Jesus, Paul was opposed by hostile Jews who plotted against his life. Like Jesus, Paul made or received three successive predictions of his coming suffering in Jerusalem, including being handed over to the Gentiles. Like Jesus, Paul declared his readiness to lay down his life. Like Jesus, Paul was determined to complete his ministry and not be deflected from it. And like Jesus, Paul was focused on doing the will of God, not his own will. Jesus said in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friend. Jesus showed us how much he valued us by saying, I'm willing to give up my life for you. You are more valuable to Jesus than his own life. He showed that, he demonstrated that. Paul showed to God, God, you are more valuable to me than my own life. I'm willing to give it to you. I'm willing to sacrifice it. I'm willing to lay it down. The question I have for myself and for you is, do you love and value Jesus enough to be willing to lay down your life for him and what he's called you to do? Is he that important? Do you love him enough? So in the second part of Paul's message, where he focuses on his present circumstances and ministry, he shares with us this big problem. Change and tribulation await him. All of us suffer that problem if we're following Jesus, but he responds by not allowing it to move him. And the three reasons why is he valued his relationship and ministry for Jesus more than his life. He cared more about finishing the race God gave him than the problems that come along the way, and he was willing to be faithful with what God called him to do, even if it meant tribulation. Let's pray.